Well, welcome to another episode of Scuttlebutt, episode 54. Uh, pretty excited today. We got a full house. I'm Nick. In the house, we got William, Vic, and hey. our guests, uh, Amy Rupert's Peacock and Don Brown, writers of Old Breed General. How Marine Corps General William H. Rupert has broke the back of the Japanese in World War II from Guadalcanal to Peleliu. Peleliu. We're gonna go it. with. We're gonna yeah. <laughs> Just for for our listeners, when you hear Peleliu or Peleliu, we're talking about the same place. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the fact that we have to, you know, discuss its pronunciation shows that it's not been publicized as it should have been when the history hasn't really. Uh, paid a full due, and part of the reason for writing this book is to correct that. Yeah. So. Right. Oh, that's that's a good point. Yeah. And and as as uh, you know, as a Marine Corps based podcast, we are no strangers to the arguments and food fights over pronunciation, <laughs> aka Lejeune, Lejeune. Lejeune. Yeah. <laughs> so Lejeune. we're very familiar with the uh, zeal that the Marines have for proper yeah, pronunciation. <laughs> All right. Now, before we jump into the book, uh, would you guys mind providing us a little bit of your journey about how we got here? Uh, Amy, you want to give us a as I'll, long or as short as you want to All go. right. Well, uh, it's been a long journey. We, um, uh, Our father, our grandfather was Major General William Henry Rupertus, who uh, wrote My Rifle, the Creed of a United States Marine, led the, well, did the two tours in China pre-World War II, and uh, got to see the Japanese up close and and uh, he also led the 1st Marine Division in the Pacific um, from Tulagi and Guadalcanal with uh, General Vandergriff and then as division commander through Peleliu. Uh, and he is a destroyer named the USS Rupertus that uh, served in our country from 1945 to 1973 and then was sold to the Greek Navy and served the Greek Navy. So that's one thing. And then our dad was also a Marine. So he um, was a Marine uh, aviator and did two tours in Vietnam. Unfortunately, they both are not here. Uh, our dad died of Agent Orange-related cancer. And uh, this is a long way of getting to this. And then my, my mom, our mom got ALS. So it was like boom, boom. And um, we, needed, we knew the story is important to tell. And it really... Uh, just the drift set in, and then along probably with a little bit of grief, like we don't want to go there. Um, and then I met Don. Um, Don was Don Brown, my co-author, was researching a another book, uh, The Last Fighter Pilot, and he came across Rupertus in uh, China when he was stationed in China and uh, in the 30s. And he's like, "Hey, Amy, messaged me on Facebook. We knew each other from Charlotte." And he said, is this your grandfather? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, it is? Why, haven't, why isn't there a story about him? You know, you need to get the story down for history and family. And uh, so that was in two, 2015, 2016. And uh, that's, that's really, Don challenged me. And, and that's how this journey began. It was the, the you know, the match that. Uh, yeah. So that you started with a journalism degree and then you went into business. Was this like a rekindling of your desire to write? Well, I um, so at Georgia, I, I pursued advertising, political science, and business, and uh, and I loved writing. But uh, I always loved writing. But actually, uh, I started writing again in around two, uh, 20 years after my father died. I needed to kind of address it, and so I started writing about that stuff, grief, resilience, um, and that has kind of got my mojo to write again and begin to tackle this story. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Don, how'd you uh, 
How'd you end up in our room today? Yeah, maybe pre-Facebook. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was pretty hard because we were going around the call. We were going around the traffic circle and took the wrong turn two or three times and wound our way through a couple of alleys. We wound up here in the studio. We're grateful <laughs> to be here. Yeah. But uh, more to the point, um, I've been writing. My first book was published in 2005. They're all military. Some are fiction. Some are nonfiction. And like Amy said, um, I had been working on a book that was released in 2017 called Last Fighter Pilot. It's a true, it's a true story about the uh, P-51 pilot who flew the very final mission, combat mission of World War II off of Iwo Jima, which was taken by our Marines in February and March of 1945. So, and I, I felt in order to write the book and do it justice, it's really about the last six months of the air war of the Army Air Force pilots flying missions attacking Japan. That I had to, I had to get a, back, a full background and understanding of our involvement in the Pacific Theater, going back to the Boxer Rebellion, and um, and and understanding what the Japanese did when they invaded Manchuria, understanding uh, our Marines being stationed there in Peking and Shanghai. And so, as Amy said, I was I was researching the historical background because I had you got to put it in the context. You have to understand the history of of the Indo-Pacific to understand World War II. And I saw Amy's grandfather in a picture. Was it in Peking? Where was Shanghai. it? Shanghai. Shanghai. He was in his blue, uh, blues, his dress blues, and it looked like a cocktail party with some of the Oster staff, and I recognized the name, Rupertus. And I knew that was Amy's maiden name. We're both from Charlotte. So I just sent her a note and said, are you kidding this guy? Are you to this guy? <laughs> and one thing led to another. We started writing. We started talking and collaborating. And at first um, – I don't want to write the book only because it's Amy's it's Grammy's grandfather, you know, but uh, we kept talking and I did not f fully understand because this is the first major biographical work on General Rupertus, the man who commanded the first Marine Division in World War II more than any other general, longer than any general. The first major biographical work. So I didn't know that much about it. Most people did not. The deeper I got into the story, the, real, the more I realized that this story and the, the book that tells the story, but the story itself is a significant national importance, not only to the Marine Corps, but to the country. And so one thing led to another, and here we are. Nice. So uh, the book Old Breed General, it's biographical in nature. We're actually trying to talk about uh, Vic, Nick, and I before the interview of like how we would classify this book, because like I said, it's biographical in nature. It's historical. You have citations in it. But it also uh, comes off as um, very narrative-like. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminded me almost as uh, sort of a version of uh, the Killer Angels, for instance, yeah, right. where you have a mm -hmm. series of uh, protagonists right. and right. It, the story jumps from different perspectives. So you sort of right. see how General uh, Rupertus, his, the uh, effects of his orders and leadership down the chain mm -hmm. of command and how he actually influenced the battle. How would you uh, describe this book? The style is literary nonfiction, but when you, when you compare it to Killer Angels, that's a very good point. Shara's uh, Killer Angels, of course, the great uh, historical fiction work about the Battle of Gettysburg is, is a great way to learn history, a great way to learn about the Battle of Gettysburg. The difference, though, but there, there's a subtle difference between uh, historical fiction and literary nonfiction. Well, literary nonfiction, um, Bill O'Reilly has written a number of books in this style, and others have as well. You're writing a history book. Uh, you're not putting in fictional characters. So with, with, bio, with, uh, with uh, historical fiction, you will have some fictional, fictional characters telling the story. Yeah, Pressfield stuff. That's exactly right. Yeah. I just watched a piece on um, a series on Netflix called The Last Kingdom, for example. Yeah, you know, and, yeah, know it. And, yeah, and so, you know, you know, there's a King Alfred, there's a King Edmund. The real Euthrid was in a different time. So that's historical fiction. But with literary nonfiction, 
everything is factual. Now, of course, we fill in dialogue when we can and to try to tie it together so that it reads almost like a novel. Uh, a lot of the dialogue that we filled in um, is, is, is not as imaginary as you might think. It's based on the fact that General Rupertus kept a very extensive diary. But it re the idea is that it, it's, it's nonfiction that reads in a novel-like manner in order to tell a story. Uh, but all the historical points are right on mark. So nothing, there are no historical events that are not on mark. There are no historical figures who uh, who um, didn't exist. That's, that is correct. Right. Right. One other thing is we uh, have gathered so many oral histories and letters between uh, uh, Rupertus and General Vandergriff, General Vandergriff and General Holcomb, and um, then you have uh, other uh, letters from other Marines who were there. You know, Colonel Cates at the time. Um, uh, you know, so you can really figure out. Hmm. By the way they wrote to each other, you know, they were on a first name basis, which some, you know, people have told me Marines don't communicate like this. I'm like, they did in the Pacific. Right. I mean, it was tough. It was called, you know, Archer, Bill, you know, Fondly. And so we had a lot of uh, idea of the way they communicated. So yeah. and let me just add, just yeah. so you know, Amy, Amy, of course, is uh, is General Reportus's granddaughter. And Amy and her two sisters have been very diligent to keep an incredible amount of records down the years. Including well, we've got trunks right, of right. gems. Right. And plus what <laughs> yeah. we did here at the Marine yeah. Corps University. Like literal history. treasure troves. Right, exactly. Yes. Her grandfather's yeah. diary, you know, notes from Eleanor Roosevelt, photographs, I mean, notes from so many photographs, Admiral Nimitz. Yeah. Um, so, so there was a treasure trove of, of first-hand of first historical information that was available. And I credit Amy and her two sisters for um for working very diligently over the years to keep these records together uh and the book is is written largely based upon those records and it's just a wild thing when you're looking at the general's diary and and nobody has ever seen this before right and and especially with the battle of tulagi which was the first i mean this book covers the battle of tulagi which is not only the first ground victory in the pacific but as best we can tell it was the first ground victory in world war ii period because the army was in North Africa, but didn't really start engaging until November. The victory in Tulagi was August 7th through 9th of 1942. The very first American ground victory in the war, which has never been written about extensively until we cover it in this book. And a lot of that is because Amy's grandfather uh, had a very detailed diary on it. And Amy kept that and her two sisters preserved well, that through also the years. There, um, it's interesting. At the beginning of the, bat the war in the Pacific... The record keeping was great. I mean, I couldn't believe the the record of events. So we could see what happened right. when the Marines. Right. If you know the story, you know the Marines landed in New Zealand and then they left mm -hmm. to go to Guadalcanal and Tulagi. And yeah. the records from that are just awesome. That's true. So, yeah. so I, and I, there are so many things that I want to touch on this, and I want to try to keep it somewhat chronological, so it's not as scattered as my brain sends the function at times. Um. Because I, I really enjoyed seeing, like, the, the especially the alternating POVs, um, the points of view yeah. that you had. Uh, and I, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole just yet. But so I guess to start then, what was the impetus of the thought process? So did was it that you guys started off as wanting just to do a biography and then you saw, hey, there's a lot of narrative here? 
or did you come out the gate like, no, we want this to be more accessible like a novel, so let's tell it that way? Well, I when I started this, um, um, we wanted to get the story down for the record. It's like the Marine Corps, one of the Marine Corps great historians, um, Annette Amarin, said, um, you know, the silence has created a problem. And so we got to solve that problem. Problem, you got to mm -hmm. solve it. And so I wanted to get the story down. I, our, my sisters were the, the remaining you know, Rupertus girls, um, wanted to get down for the record. And so he was born in 1889 and died in 1945, and I wanted to get all that in. But that is like a huge book. Right. And, um, and it's, still, I, it's still important. But when John and I decided to work together to bring in the mill, you know, we decided to start, um, start it in 1942 and um, flashback to Rupertus's early life. Which which worked um, because and so is the that book. is that desire to have those sort of flashback moments then that drove you towards more narrative vice just a straight absolutely. biography absolutely okay. I mean it yeah you can yeah. go well the thing is uh, the general's life you could probably write four or five books his time in China his time with, in Haiti and the Caribbean you know the general wrote the Marine Corps the Marine, the Rifleman's Creed which every Marine in time immemorial has learned since then but um, his, you know, what do you do? His, 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 arguably his most significant contribution to history is his command of the 1st Marine Division in the greatest war in history. And so we had to make a decision to focus on uh, his, his, his service in World War II in the Pacific using flashbacks to tell some of the other stories. And you mentioned the opposing point of views. And whenever you can... You can, you can write anything, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it matters not. If you can create tension in the writing, it makes for better writing. So, for example, we had some, some opposing viewpoints in the, in the opening chapters on the Battle of Tulagi, again, the first American victory on the ground there right across the sound from Guadalcanal. But we had lots of details on Commander Suzuki, who was the, um, the Japanese commander, and we were able to, to, to find a lot of things about the Japanese and sort of be able to go back and forth and back and forth to try to recreate what it may have been like for the Japanese. You know, they, they were looking for us. They, you know, they had planes out looking. They didn't know we were on top of them until we were on top of them. They had to react. And uh, so, you know, I just think it makes for better writing if you can present uh, multiple viewpoints, especially in a conflict situation. But Amy's right. We have so much, so much that could have been put in there and still could be. Uh, that was a challenge to try to figure out how to narrow the focus of the book. Well, and we have uh, copies of letters from General Vandergriff. So this is early, you know, Guadalcanal, August 7th, August 9th, he's writing. He writes a, a lot in August to General Holcomb, the commandant, mm -hmm. uh, at that time. And he's, he's telling the stories, exactly what Don was just talking about about the Japanese, but he's also drawing little maps and he's saying, oh, I'm a terrible artist, but this is what I can give you. And it's, right. it's really just, um, right. you know, storytelling. He's so it's really just sort of, it was just this kaleidoscope then of information and perspectives. I mean, you're blending history, you're blending first-hand account right. diary, you're, you're blending, I guess, intelligence reports is all how that. we're getting... Record all of that. events. Yeah. Yeah. But, but all that has to be woven together as a story. Right, the right. The best way to teach history is through story. You know, if I go mm -hmm. to Encyclopedia Britannica and open up and read about, uh, you know, whatever, Peleliu or whatever it might be, Iwo Jima, 
I'm, I'm getting flooded with a lot of information, but to be able to bring it to life as best you can is right. how you best tell a story. It makes me think yeah. of, um, what is it, uh, Bill O'Brien's uh, Things They Carry, right, where he's telling the story of Vietnam through the mm-hmm. equipment <laughs> sets that they right. had. Um, yeah, so I, I, I... Yeah, one thing I wanted to add that, you know, I've read a lot of books on the Pacific, and um, there, there's what I found is there are a lot about one battle. Right. And... Or it's so zoomed out, mm-hmm. you have no idea what the boots on the dr- right. ground are doing. Mm-hmm. So going into this, I wanted, you know, I had my, my grandfather's, um, you know, uh, uh, record of his duty stations. And um, I I could see, you know, where he was going, going what he's doing. And I, when I got to the Pacific, I mean, I really wanted, you know, when we were bombed by the Japanese Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, what happened then? Everything changed, you know. And so I wanted to go along with the 1st Marine Division through the Pacific as far as he did um, to kind of and zoom in versus do this big zoom out. So I think that's really important um, to, for people to understand, you know, to go and be able to go along with the Marines and the Navy. Can't, can't forget the Navy. Don't forget the Navy. <laughs> Don't forget the Navy. <laughs> so on top of uh, writing about uh, a figure who's like significant to your family, uh, who all who has very little uh, – I would say like historical like notation as like most people really don't know about him. You also make an argument and bring attention to the fact that uh, how he, uh, General Rupertus was a significant contributor to the victory of Guadalcanal that a lot of historians may have overlooked in the past. How much of your desire to write this was based on trying to make uh, the point that, like, like I said, like that he that he was essential to the victory there. Well, I think uh, you know. As Annette said, silence has created a problem. So other people have put in information that they think is accurate, or 60 years later there's an oral history, and things you know get a little you know foggy. But uh, uh, we know from his diary that he he was back at. Some historians say he was never on Guadalcanal, and I'm like, what? Well, I don't know if I'll call him a historian if they're making that. Right, claim, but, but anyway. writers, but uh, he's never <laughs> on Guadalcanal. But he was, and he, he, you can see from his diary that was at the Marine Corps History Division in his file um, mm-hmm. that you can that he was always going back and forth between Tulagi and Guadalcanal, and that when General Vandergriff did leave with General Holcomb to go up to Numia to see uh, Admiral Halsey to uh, and um, uh, to get supplies moving for the Marines, right. um, General Rupertus was in command. Yeah. Uh, some, oh, sorry, Don. Now, let me, let me take a, also just add to your question on Guadalcanal. Okay. Guadalcanal is, Guadalcanal, of course, is in the Solomon Islands. The reason that, that we were trying to take it, you have, you have to remember this is August of 42. In, in June of 42, the Navy had this epic battle with the Japanese at Midway, taking out virtually all their carriers, four carriers at the bottom of the ocean. Now, Therefore, Japan, Japan's forward air power was significantly clipped because of that. At Guadalcanal, the Japanese were building a large airstrip. So the battle for Guadalcanal, in part, was to control that airfield. Tulagi is 20 miles north of Guadalcanal across the Sea Lark Channel, which later became known as Iron Bottom Sound because so many ships were sunk there. So in order to take Guadalcanal, first you had to take Tulagi because that's where the Japanese sea bases, seaplanes were based, Japanese communications there. Japan had a deep war port there. So as the American 
first of all, is the American fleet with 75 ships are bringing in the primarily the 1st Marine Division under the overall command of General Vandegrift. Vandegrift assigned his, his deputy, Rupertus, who at that time was a one-star, to attack and secure Tulagi before we even moved. Well, we, had to, we had to cut off the head of the snake. So that was their, the first battle. If you've ever seen, if you've ever seen um, uh, Spielberg's The Pacific, um, I don't know if you guys have seen yep. that or if any of our listeners see it, it's kind of historically accurate in one sense because it, it shows our guys coming on to Guadalcanal without much opposition, which is true. But what it doesn't tell you is that for three days, 20 miles north of there, there had been a vicious bloodbath in Tulagi, uh, and and Tanambogo, the two, the islet and Gavatu, the the three islet, the two islets in the in the island that we had to take to secure it, so we could come on the Guadalcanal. Now then, with Guadalcanal, there were three major land battles. There was the Battle of Alligator Creek, which is the first one. Then there was the Battle of Edson's Ridge, and the final is what we call the Battle of Henderson Field. And it's that Battle of Henderson Field that Amy's talking about, in which General Rupertus wound up commanding on the ground because General Vandegrift had gone back to Numea. You know, to actually lobby for more supplies and support from the Marines, and when that happened, the Japanese attacked. It was their last major counteroffensive, the last attempt to break through the perimeter uh, around uh, the point there. The airport. That's correct, and the grab the airport. And our Marines fought them back under General Vandegrift, General Rupertus's command on the ground. That's when, of course, uh, John Bastone one of the greatest Marines ever, won the Medal of Honor. But that part is left out. We, don't, we didn't even – the fact that, that Rupertus commanded that final battle has been left – largely left out of history. And we've got it corroborated from multiple sources, as we know, as we know that it happened. But it's important. You know, we're 80 years out now. It's important that the historical record is set so that we know who was where and what happened. So uh, he was very integral to, 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 um, to, to that overall victory. First, by taking cutting off the head of the snake, then by commanding the final ground battle before he took total command of the 1st Marine Division in Australia a few months yeah. later. And you touched on it a little bit, too, because he was in China before the war. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I know that he started in 42, so it's hard to kind of right. help set that up. So you, you have flashbacks and all that. Yeah. But um, so for the podcast, how was his experience before the war able to help contribute? Well, I think it was hugely helpful. Uh, he... he for those who don't know, uh, the Marines used to be, we had internet, international settlements in China, and each country would bring in uh, their guards. And of course, the Americans brought in, the, uh, the American sector was guarded by Marines. And our grandfather was a uh, commanding officer of the Marines in Peking from 1929 to 1931, and then again in Shanghai in 1937 through 1938.. His first tour of duty was fairly calm. I mean, if you know the history, there was the Boxer Rebellion in, you know, the early 1900s. 1890s, I think, yeah. And, late, um, yeah. Late 90s, yeah. So these settlements were as a result of that Boxer Rebellion, that the um, Europeans and Americans could come in and do business in China. So anyway, the first time he was there, um, uh, they weren't even there a year, and his, um, his scarlet fever swept through, and his wife, who was 38, his daughter, who was four, got it and died right before Christmas. Um, and then his wife, who was 38, Marguerite, got it. This is scarlet fever. And then her, um, their 14-year-old son got it. And they all died of scarlet fever um, and within two months. And then Rupertus was put in quarantine 
Um, so that was, 19, you can what, imagine. 27. You're in 27 now, right? 1929 and 1930. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So <clears throat> he, stayed, he stayed. There was no Marine to fill his position. He got out of quarantine. So much like COVID now, he couldn't even say goodbye to his children and wife, and they got shipped back to uh, the United States. They're all buried at Arlington Cemetery near his grave, underneath his grave. And um, so that was, he had to get through that. And the only way I think he got through it was staying with the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. the, the camaraderie. I mean, for him to go home would be, ugh, mm-hmm. you know. So he was there. Um, at the time, General Holcomb, well, Colonel Holcomb then was right next to him. So he saw everybody on base knew what was happening or on the, uh, in the sector, American sector. And anyway, so fast forward. He gets he remarries, comes back to Washington, um, eventually meets uh, my grandmother, Sleepy. Uh, she comes from a Navy family and, you know, didn't matter that Rupertus was, I don't know, 20 years older. <laughs> <laughs> Different time. Um, yeah. They got married. And next thing you know, he gets a second tour of duty, a duty, tour of duty to uh, China. And things have really heated up by then. You know, all the Japanese had started uh, these little incidents in China. Yeah, their imperial ambitions were yeah, pretty they well were, known at that point. They were poking yes. and prodding. Yeah. And yeah. so um, they were in Shanghai, and it was a super cosmopolitan city. And they were in the, you know, Shanghai na- International Settlement, actually right outside of it, and uh, in these Cathay apartments. And they were there on August 4th, 1937, the Japanese rolled in their big ships, and um, then they bombed uh, Shanghai August 13th, um, 1947, 37. And uh, he was there to witness that. Um, they knew the Japanese were coming, so the Marines um, guarded, you know, they built barricades around the international sector of the international settlement, and more barricades and more sandbags, and put up, um, you know, different strong points. Um, and for weeks, they had to manage the flood of the refugees coming into the international settlement and then make sure the Japanese didn't come in and, meanwhile, see full-on war mm-hmm. before their eyes that they right. could not respond to. They were told not to fire. So our grandfather was – our grandmother and all, all the Marine wives and dependents were evacuated and um, – he stayed behind, and, and for weeks, the Marines, the 4th Marines uh, who were there guarded this sector 24 by 7, and then they brought in the 6th Marines who were in uh, the Philippines because it was getting too intense, and the 6th Marines came in to assist. So from my perspective, that Battle of Shanghai, we had um, uh, Colonel Price writing home to the states saying these we've never seen people or, you know, enemies or anybody in war mm-hmm. do this kind of type yeah. of battle. The they have ferocity. The ferocity, yeah. it, and they will come to yeah. our shores. And Admiral Yarnell was writing back, and this is like 1937, warning signs. Mm-hmm. And nobody, I mean, we were doing some training in the Pacific. I know the Marines were, or in, you know, Hawaii and that sort of thing, and in Puerto Rico, but no one seemed to really pension, but pay enough attention, I think. And then yeah. so by the time the Japanese mm-hmm. bombed us, you can imagine Rupertus and the Marines who were sitting there watching this and sh- play out in Shanghai and then hearing about what was happening in Nanking, the rape of Nanking, mm-hmm. not being able to do anything. Right. Yeah. This is really fascinating because yeah. we just had um, a guest talk about World War II intelligence. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we talked about uh, at length 
uh, Will, William and I were was that gap um, yep. in how could we be surprised yep. at Pearl Harbor, especially now to hear your guys' firsthand yeah. or you know what you've gathered were firsthand accounts of like this is gonna happen, right. and, and so there were many theories about why we just weren't in the intelligence game really um, right. at the time. You know, a lot of European focus, uh, a lot of right. just sort of. American exceptionalism, like, oh, the Japanese, yeah. they're not going to, they can't right. cross the Pacific and do that to us. And those are just many, many things, but it's really fascinating to juxtapose yeah. his, you know, sort of 35,000 foot view of World War II intelligence during World War II and leading up to World right. War II, and then to hear your guys' sort of firsthand account of, like, we're here seeing this. Why won't anybody listen to us? Right. Well, there was a disconnect between intel that we had and action that needed to be taken. But Above and beyond that, there's a whole there's a whole issue of how General Purtis, having been in Shanghai, prepared him uniquely for a battle, uh, you know, in 1942, 41, 42. I don't know if you guys have ever seen. There's a movie called Patton, 1970. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where there's a great what scene in that best, movie, yeah. a great scene in the movie when Patton's tanks clash with Rommel's for the first time. They come out on top, and Patton's laying there, you know, in his in his bunk. And he's in his tent, and he picks, he picks up a book, and he said, and he's smiling. He says, "Rommel, you magnificent son of a bitch! I read your book, you know." <laughs> <laughs> and and he did. And um, I'm assuming that might be historically. I hope that it is. <laughs> but at any rate, Patton was a student of the enemy, and General Rupertus, having been in Shanghai, especially in thirty, in in the last tour in thirty-seven, from October until about January, somewhere in there. Well, that's that is the time, the time frame in which the Japanese went on a rampage. Mm-hmm. And think about this: in World War II, the United States lost about four hundred thousand men, men and women, but about four hundred thousand losses for the United States in World War II. In in Shanghai, in four months alone, about two hundred thousand Chinese were killed. About half the number of people were killed in one city in a four month period alone in Shanghai that we lost in the entire world, and that's just in one city. And the general was there witnessing all this, Mm -hmm. frustrated, of course, they could not take action. As Amy said, warning the chain of command all the way out to Washington, we need to be prepared. But it helped him to see and study the enemy face-to-face, to to understand its brutality and savagery. And with, you know, the general and... And Colonel Price and others, and Vandegrift was there too, wasn't he, at one point? He was there earlier. He yeah. was in, in Shanghai at the time, but yeah. But but these guys saw what they were facing. And I think, and Amy can talk about his authorship of the Rifleman's Creed, I think that clearly is one of the things that inspired him to do that because he knew that we were facing. You know, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned that we mentioned the book I'd written earlier called Last Fighter Pilot. It's about the final combat mission flown in the war. One of the things we talk about in the book is uh, – Former President George H.W. Bush um, flew a combat mission over Chichijima, and uh, two of the other planes in his squadron were shot down. All three were shot down. Bush wound up in, out in the sea and was picked up the USS Finback, but the other two planes parachuted into Chichijima, and they were cannibalized by the Japanese. So the Japanese were a far fiercer, in, in, in terms of their treatment of prisoners of war, for example, than the Germans. The Germans were very, very, very rough with Soviet prisoners, but mostly with American and 
and French and, and, and British and Canadian prisoners of war, they were treated somewhat humane. Not so the Japanese. The general knew what type of foe he was going to face. And I think especially that last tour in Shanghai was revelatory and made him uniquely qualified to, to take the command that he did later. Yeah, there, there are also books I've read by civilians who were there um, at the time working for Standard Oil or whatever, and their, their stories kind of uh, partner with the Marine stories, how rough it were. I mean, there were, there were heads in the trees. There was a shrapnel flying in the Marines' faces. There was a stray gunfire everywhere. The Japanese were coming into their houses and, and you know, um, knifing all the paintings and bringing their horses into the house. Um, there were kids running around not knowing where their parents were. Um, you know, the, when the bombing happened, the uh, concrete was flying everywhere and just like missiles in the air. And it was, it was really incredible. And there were coffins everywhere that Japanese, I mean, the Chinese were sitting on top yeah. of. It was you know, just... Mm. So it, it right. was a time that it was building up, and in, in he, when he was in, left uh, his first duty, tour of duty in Peking in 1931, by the few months later, the Japanese had bombed a suburb of Shanghai. This is in 1931, killed a thousand people, and every uh, international settlement went into lockdown then, assuming that they would invade. And that was in 1931. And then yeah. in 1937, yeah, they six years later. And, and yeah. in the United States, we were not paying attention. Right. Of course, we were coming through a, a depression, coming out of a depression, but we're turned totally inward. And that's uh, what makes it so relevant yeah. now because right. the Pacific's back in play. And the, if you look at the, what the Japanese did bit to build up their right. um, naval, um, naval armament um, over the, 20, the late 20s and 30s, I mean, well, are we paying yeah, attention? They were ignoring yeah. treaties and everything. Well, they're, yeah. they're, so, yeah. they're huge lessons to be learned with the Japanese. The, the lesson of how they, they've gone from extreme savagery now to civility, one of the most civil nations on earth. You look at the, the Germans, relatively civil until the, until the Nazi government took control and became savages in, in their treatment uh, of the Jews and, and Poles and others. And, and uh, we have to be ever vigilant. You know, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, as President Reagan said, quoting Thomas Jefferson, I suppose, but we've got to be vigilant, and we, as Amy said, we can't just stick our heads in the sand and not pay attention to what we're seeing now, whether it's the South China Sea or what's going on with Taiwan or whatever it might be, but it's, uh, there are lessons to be drawn from history for sure, and there are some valuable lessons to be drawn from this era. Absolutely. So would you then, before you're just going to jump back, back up to this era, would you be, not having done all the research for World War II, how the international community kind of rallied behind Ukraine? Would that would you say that's a little bit more of a step forward? <laughs> we're not we're not getting in, but we're getting a lot of missiles. Yeah. Um. I. You know. Well, that's, we. That's a, go ahead, Amy. Yeah. I'm not sure I can answer that. No, I did okay. listen to a great uh, Zoom conference on that right now, but um, I think for us, for the research we've done, is really on the Pacific. And what we're seeing now is the Chinese have taken over Guadalcanal, where our Marines were fighting <laughs> precisely mm -hmm. this month, 80 years ago. They're building, literally building islands uh, in the Pacific and putting uh, military bases on them. So if you think about what happened in 19, 1942 through 1945 in the Pacific, 
it's very similar. So a little um, Eurocentric today. I'll, t yeah. I'll take a whack yeah. at your, your yeah. Ukraine question. The question of U.S. military involvement is one question. I personally don't think we should be directly involved in terms of putting boots on the ground there. You know, you, you support them however you can. But the bigger question isn't necessarily direct involvement, but rather U.S. military preparedness. And, you know, we weren't ready when World War II started. We had three carriers, you know, sit and we're, by the grace of God, they weren't in, they weren't in port on December 7th. But then you look after World War II, Truman um, almost decimated the Marine Corps. In fact, there was talk about, you know, doing away with it altogether. And um, General MacArthur's uh, invasion in China and the, Marine, the Marines fighting all through Korea was heroic and and it chose the reservoir. We weren't ready for Korea. Mm -hmm. We're not ready now. And so I, I think when you look at places like um, Ukraine or what's going on in, you know, in, in the Spratly Islands or in the South China Sea, you know, with the with the Chinese flexing their military muscle, trying to say the Straits of Taiwan or or, or all that Chinese territorial waters, and we're reducing, you know, our we're reducing the size of the navy. We're reducing you know, our carrier, uh, our, our carrier task forces. We, uh, the Army and the Navy both have missed recruiting goals in the last couple of years. And that is the message of Ukraine. You know, we don't know for sure what Putin's up to. Is, 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 he going, okay. is, is he going to try to take Ukraine and then go back into the Baltics? Uh, is he going to make the mistake of going into Poland, which is now? We don't know. But what? We do know at this point, in my opinion, we're not militarily prepared. They got ahead of us in several areas, uh, you know, PSYOPs being one, these hypersonic missile technology being another. The Chinese have been catching up in, in space warfare. We've let, our, we've let ourselves get behind. Again, I'll go back to President Reagan. Amy and I spoke at the Reagan Library a couple of weeks ago out in, in Simi Valley. We are honored to be invited to go out there. But he had a saying that our, our military should be so strong that no potential adversary should ever test its strength. And I think that's the lesson of Ukraine. And I think, you know, we, we got caught with our pants down several times leading to World War II, leading up to the Korean War, and it should never happen again. Well, it's like our commandant said, like, we are 100%. We have a 100% record at picking the wrong fight. <laughs> the Don is right about that. Yeah. The Don is right about that. Right. But, the, um, the, you know, with Putin, you know, with stopping the oil, people are in Poland are already, and Germany are already thinking, how are we going to heat our houses? So these are cutting but, down trees. But these are geostrategic strategic mm -hmm, sure. issues. We've got the sure. oil here to supply Europe. Why don't we do it? So we can do that without having to, you know, without having to put Marines or SEALs or the 82nd Airborne on the ground. We can do all that. And we should be doing more of that from a geostrategic standpoint, mm -hmm. in addition to cutting certain parts of the government and rebuilding the military. But anyway, I have my thoughts on that. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to go too far. Yeah. Somebody yeah. asked a question about well, Ukraine, about so be careful what you ask for. Well, yeah. to, uh, to bring it back to uh, World War II, so um, how did General Rupertus take the lessons and observations he made while in China and then try to uh, uh, make adjustments to the Marine Corps to face the potential uh, near-pair threat of Japan? I know we mentioned the Rifleman's Creed, but like, uh, how, what, uh, what uh, concrete things did he do? Well, I'd say I think the Rifleman's Creed is really important because he wrote it um, he, the, to start with that. He uh, 
wrote, he was an expert rifleman and he'd been recruited right when he got into the Marine Corps for the rifleman's team to go around the country and compete. And then he was an instructor and then he witnessed, you know, the power of the rifle keeping the Japanese away uh, in Shanghai. Uh, and so by the time the Marines, uh, he was head of the Marine Corps recruit depot in uh, San Diego after the Japanese bombed us in 1942. So he was there when all these Marines came, all these young guys came in and they're ready to go get you know, revenge and go fight the Japanese in the Pacific. And he knew that their rifle was gonna save lives and they needed to get their hearts and minds around the rifle and how to, how to use it and um, care for it in the Pacific because um, it would not only help them, but it would help their brother. So I think mentally thinking about that, if you know the words of the Rifleman's Creed, um, it's very powerful. Then he also was, um, in the 30s, he was working on the amphibious warfare training, and they'd seen the amphibious, and I know General Krulak uh, did as well, but you know what the, how the Japanese were using amphibious vehicles. So they were working on that training in the 30s, and then he could say it play out in the, in the Pacific. Mm. Uh, so I think uh, he was, he was uh, very knowledgeable on the amphibious uh, warfare as well. Yeah. If and, that answered your and question. And put into play at Tulagi. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'll just say, I, I've compared General Apertus, I've called him the George S. Patton of the Pacific. He, he had a, but, but in terms of his, he, he was more politically um, polished than General Patton was, but had a sort of attack and take no prisoners approach. I'd also com compare him to Stonewall Jackson. He would attack quickly and out of the night. And so when, she, when Amy's talking about Amphib. Again, the very first victory of the war, Tulagi, was also the first example of an amphibious mm -hmm. invasion. Mm -hmm. And not only an amphibious invasion, but at Tulagi, we understand how it played out. It says a lot about the general swashbuckling and daring attitude. Think about Tulagi from the air looks almost like the island of Cuba, kind of like a, a hot dog going from northwest to southeast. Mm -hmm. And so down in the southeast part of the hot dog, uh, the island's three, three and a half miles long. Down at the southeast part, the Japanese are concentrated. They're not worried about everything up in the northwest part of where, where Oregon and Washington would be because the whole island has a huge horseshoe of wreath around oh, it. Cool. That horseshoe of coral wreath covers the entire island except the southeast tip. The Japanese are expecting us to attack where the coral was not. So Rapertus executes a daring plan. He brings his Marines into several hundred yards off the beach to where the coral is. They jump out of the landing craft. And they could have gone. So, sometimes over their heads, yeah. sometimes over their neck, and wade in on the back side, and there they accumulate. And then, you know, Colonel Edson at that time led the raiders down from the south, from the northwest to the southeast. That was a very daring move. We didn't know if it would would uh, pan out but Rupertus had confidence he had a daring swashbuckling you know uh, attack at all cost uh, mentality about him he knew what he was facing and, and, what, uh, and one other thing um, that he was good at and you, I can see from the letters and, and actually I have a great uh, <coughs> book uh, from a coast watcher Earl Spencer who was um, right Tulagi. Uh, with Rupertus, he right. was Rupertus's guide. But uh, Rupertus would always go out and try to get to know the natives, because um, he knew the natives would help with taking care of the Marines, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. help spy, and so um, that that was really good too, building those relationships with 
um, yeah. the Native communities. Yeah, and those lessons are 100% applicable today as we as Marine Corps are talking about expeditionary advance basing um, and, uh, you know, occupying islands as a deterrent to right. what we've mentioned as far as the Chinese right. uh, expansion and stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, those sorts of things are absolutely aspects of this war and sort of what we call now the intelligence preparation of the battlefield that we need to be applying. Um, because, yeah, if, if we're not going to do a great job of remaining hidden if every time a local sees a Marine he hits a Facebook <laughs> post or hits yeah. a Twitter like, right. hey, check out who I saw today. Like, oh, okay, I guess we're everybody knows we're here now. Yeah. <coughs> the other thing, uh, one other thing, and then I'll finish <laughs> up with this question. But um, there were caves. You know, everybody talks about the caves on Peleliu and Iwo Jima yeah, yeah. and Okinawa, but there were caves on Tulagi and really deep caves that were of certain levels. And he talked about it. Um, he was actually interviewed in Guadalcanal Diary and his the comments about the caves and what you had to do to get the Japanese out of the caves. Um, he learned a lot about that too, but they were there. They weren't on Guadalcanal as much, but right. or Cape Gloucester. Right. Gloucester. Gloucester. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, I got distracted by the caves. Um, so, yeah, so Tulagi was this, uh, you could call it pretty much like a, an epic success. The Japanese weren't expecting it to go down that fast or that, that well. Um, and so after he's now jumped to Guadalcanal, which is, uh, is pretty well covered, that's pretty well trodden ground. So I don't know if you guys mind if we just kind of yeah. push past that, uh, and kind of get a little bit later in the war as, uh, Rupert's is going through and he's... They're, you know, the Marines are always pushing, and they're always trying to get there. And it, he starts to wear down a little bit. Um, well, I think with yeah. – um, I was thinking about this, you know, as I was writing. I got to Cape Gloucester, and it was probably like the Marines felt like, another yeah. battle. And this, you know, the, the natives said there's going to be rain, a monsoon. And the Marines were like, well, you know – of course, yeah. <laughs> they were like told that you had, they well, had a timeline. Yeah. <laughs> they had a timeline, and so, um, but Tulagi, I mean, Gate Gloucester was one of the best. Um, our grandfather later talked about it, but one of a great amphibious um, allied uh, <coughs> operation. But it was messy. I mean, mm -hmm. if you've seen the movie The Pacific, mm -hmm. um, you know it, it, it was. I mean, it was the Green Inferno. It was um, really wet. Um, but, you know, they're good, good things happened there. They built, we've got a ton of video from them, um, that, um, we found as part of the SC film lab down in South Carolina that's processing all these old Marine Corps films. You, you really can go as inside, you can go yeah. there and look up history or times and you can pull up all these films, but we have films of, um, them building the, the airfield at Cape Gloucester. Um, his pilot is landing his plane, his name is Sleepy on it, um, landing his plane, and all the Marines are so happy because they've worked so hard for this. Yeah. And then the natives come over and check out the plane. They had never seen a plane like this at Cape Gloucester. Um, and at that time, he also, um, he was, there was sun on Cape Gloucester. <laughs> and he started something called the Improvised Air Force because uh, the big bombers were bringing, um, dropping food down for and supplies to the troops on the ground and it was just it was dangerous you know they had to run for cover mm -hmm. 
So Rupertus got uh, approval to get some of MacArthur's uh, Piper Cubs, and he had um, his pilot train uh, this little improvised uh, Air Force, Marine Air Force, and they went around Cape Gloucester uh, delivering food, supplies, plasma, whatever you need, maybe some mail even. So that Cape Gloucester was hard on the Marines, but it, it, was, um, it got better. They thought after Cape Gloucester they were going to go back to Australia for R&R. Right. And um, from my understanding, talking to um, Marines who were there, who unfortunately aren't alive anymore. Mm. I was writing the, we were writing the book as fast as we could. Yeah. <laughs> but um, true, true. But um, they were literally on the ship and and heard, you know, uh, Pavuvu or not Pavuvu. Um, oh my gosh, Pelu. It's uh, what's the island? Shoot. Um, <sighs> Do you remember? Palau? No, not Palau. You mean with Bob Hope? What are you talking about? Uh, Bob Hope. It's not Bandy. It'll, it'll come to us in a minute. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> we'll, we'll edit it in. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> edit it in because it, it was, it Papavu. looked great. Pavavu. Pavavu. Pavuvu. That's the first one she said was Pavuvu. <laughs> she got it right. Okay. <laughs> well, um, anyway, it anyway right. so it looked great, like a total, you know, uh, yeah. as island in the Pacific and with, you know, palm trees and white sand beach um, and beautiful blue-green water in the front. But then as they got in, they realized it was an old coconut plantation that had been abandoned. And all the coconuts were on the ground and there were huge crabs running everywhere. And um, I think that was, that, was, that was tough on the Marines, but the CVs came in and took care of it. But he had been in the Pacific for a while. And, uh, you know, it when they landed um, after Cape Gloucester, they were on this island for R&R. And um, Rupertus went back to Washington with his chief of staff, uh, Jerry Selden, and uh, um, basically advocated for the Marines, saying, we, we need to bring some of these guys home. And there were just not enough officers and men to let go. Um, so a lot of them had to stay. Some got to go home. But... Um, uh, Anyway, they knew that, that you know, they had battles coming up. Tarawa happened, which, if you know the history, mm -hmm. was a really mm -hmm. uh, yeah. short but violent. Utmost savagery, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, uh, so the next next step for the Marines was this island called Peleliu. And, um, you know, they planned it like, a, I, th I believe, a conventional, I guess you'd say conventional assault. Is that how you'd say it, Marine? Mm -hmm. That they'd been doing throughout the Pacific that worked. Um, they, the Japanese had been, um, you know, the Marine, the Navy would come in and bomb, and then the Marines would come ashore, and then uh, uh, the Japanese generally retreated, and then would bonsai attack, um, and then come attack them as the Marines went inland. This time, the Japanese changed their strategy, and they they. A document I found from the Japanese back then was they were prepared to um, end the Americans' advance in the Pacific at Peleliu. And so it was a total change in strategy, more of a uh, bomb you at the beach and then delay and bleed to ensure as much um, casualties yeah. as possible. In the initial assault, which was, a, which yeah. was a turning point because that's kind of how they went the rest of the war. That's was correct. Yeah. It was the first. Draw it out, yeah. Yeah, and so, um. yeah, our grandfather had... Um, in training for Peleliu, um, he'd gone to a boat or gone to watch some of the um, the operations and the training, and he um, anyway broke his ankle 
or sprained it, broke it um, as he was stepping in a boat. You know, the canvas, he gra grabbed mm -hmm. a handle of the canvas and it had shredded. So he mm -hmm. just fell down on some coral and that's how he broke his foot. And, you know, General Vandergriff came to see him on um, Pavuvu. Pavuvu, Pavuvu. <laughs> I think she got it. Yep. We'll see. But, uh, uh, and he saw that Rupertus was on crutches, but he didn't say, you know, maybe someone else should do this. And yeah. um, so, but, you know, General Vandergriff had been injured on Guadalcanal and, you know, hurt his ankle. So I guess... But it, so going into the battle, Rupertus was injured. He had, an, a, a, he had his ankle was healing, um, but they thought it would be faster because the naval power, the naval gunfire. They had, the Navy had been bombing Peleliu since um, uh, March mm -hmm. of uh, 1944. So by the time they got there in September, you'd think that would have made some, yeah, uh, some damage, um, and it, it definitely took off a lot of the vegetation. But it didn't get the right. Japanese that were hiding deep Not in the caves. Attrition, right. Mm -mm. We're, we're throwing out a d several different battles. Um, just so your readers know, or listeners know, the general commanded four significant battles in World War II. The first was obviously Tulagi mm -hmm. uh, and Agavatu. Tanambogo. Tanambogo. Altogether, that was the first American victory on the ground. The second major battle, battle was the Battle of Henderson Field was the final and largest battle in Guadalcanal. After that, it was mop-up primarily. Then you heard Amy talking about a Cape Gloucester, and then finally Peleliu. The interesting thing about Cape Gloucester, as Amy was talking about with all the rain, is that at this period of time, pri prior to initiating this attack, in between Cape Gloucester and Guadalcanal, the Marines had gone to Australia. And at that point, General MacArthur fell in love with General Rupertus, he became a big fan of General Rupertus and lobbied for and, and FDR allowed the 1st Marine Division to come under MacArthur's command for that third battle, that is for Cape Gloucester. And the, the reason MacArthur wanted Cape Gloucester is because Cape Gloucester, again, this island is kind of like a hot dog, kind of like I described um, Tulagi earlier. And on the far west is New Britain. And then on the far east, the Japanese are Rabul, where their naval base is. Mm -hmm. And they've been, even though their carriers are gone, they've been wreaking hell against our forces in the Solomon Islands of nightly raids. And MacArthur was trying to put a noose around the naval base there. So we have the Marines still fighting up you know, through the Solomon Islands, moving north on one side, and he wanted to take that on the... So they're putting a squeeze around the Japanese there. And from that victory, which went quite well, the final battle at Peleliu was, as you pointed out, the first battle where the Japanese had significantly changed their strategy. And I think William or someone, who was talking about Nick Vick? Somebody was talking about... <laughs> one of us. One of you guys was talking about Japanese, about intelligence gaps during the war. Yeah especially in the Pacific. Um, and we saw that, b to a large degree, both at Peleliu and then later even in Iwo Jima because the Japanese changed their strategy. They went in the holes and where they've been doing this sort of like retreating counterattack strategy, which is what they run, like, again, going back to Guadalcanal, if you've seen the Pacific, it's true. They went in the woods 
And when we are on shore, they come around and try to hit us from the side, attack us, and surround us. Retreat and counterattack. That's what, what had happened. But, but at Peleliu was the first major change where they hit you on the ground, hit you in the teeth. They're hiding in. Hit in, you at the beach. Yeah, exactly. And pull you in. And, you and, in. and our intelligence, we didn't have satellites overhead. We didn't have drones overhead. It was sketchy and limited. So, you know, the Navy had been hitting Peleliu for quite some time. And fast forward to January of, even from November of 44 until February of 45, Navy had been bombing the hell out of, of Iwo Jima yeah. mm -hmm. and left it into oh, a yeah. rubble. But the Japanese were well, so, underneath. Yeah. So, so Peleliu and General Rupertus sometimes gets unfairly criticized because Japanese totally changed their strategy. So, so a few of these uh, wannabe historians that have written some books that don't, I don't have a, when you screw it up historically, you lose credibility with me. When somebody says, oh, the general said it was going to take 40 days to work it out, what oh, yeah. the hell do you expect? Faster than Tarawa, yeah. Exactly. So they're high, we haven't seen this strategy before. Our intelligence is limited. Mm -hmm. Nobody nobody commands to the, uh, criticize the commanders of 4th and 5th Marines in, in Iwo Jima for that or Okinawa because they've changed their strategy. So that's just ignorant talk if you ask me. But it was a turning point in, you know, and, and if, think if we had had to invade the Japanese homeland, what it would have been. Um, oh, gosh. There, yeah. is, there is a, uh, Amy and her sisters have uncovered a couple of uh, CBS, one is a CBS radio broadcast when the General Reportus came home in November of 44. He's interviewed. And I don't know if you guys have heard that or not. If, not, if you haven't heard it, you should listen to it. You should replay it if you get a chance. You can play it. But uh, right. yeah. the other thing about... Uh, Peleliu. Uh, so we found, uh, when we decided to get into this history, we found a letter that he wrote to our grandmother. And he was on the ship before DDA on Peleliu. And um, he told her, you know, that they've planned as much as they could. They've done as, you know, all their training. And he thought it was going to be fast, but he did, he wasn't, he was feeling a, a little tension, like yeah. it could have less. They may have more casualties. So this is the night before battle. He said, but he's prayed and prayed that we will not. And um, uh, and he talked about Halsey and all the, the that, you know, Opie Smith was going to go in first and this and this happened. I mean, I guess at that time he was just putting it out there. But um, I think it was, I think it was hard for the Marines and it was hard for our grandfather. Um, so by the end, you can see a picture in the book in comparing to when he starts to when he ends. Sure. He looks really tired. Yeah, it, t it tends to age you. Yeah. <laughs> one, one thing that, um, you know, we were talking about publishers earlier. One, one thing that this publisher has done that we really like is that this publisher, more than any book I've ever had worked on, has allowed a lot of photographs, um, which are interspersed throughout the book. Most of those photographs are Rupert's family collection photographs that Amy and her sisters had kept. Uh, and then a number of them are Army and Navy, official Army and Navy photos as well. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you can see some of those photographs in Peleliu. The general and his staff, it'll wear you down. And, the, and they have been oh, yeah. out there longer than anybody, and it was good to finally get them back. But, you know, it's uh, – Yeah, you got a couple great pictures in there, like the one with uh, the general and uh, Chessie Polar where right. they just both look exhausted. Right, <laughs> right, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Chessie so. was there at D-Day in Peleliu, you know I mean? Yeah. So – most of the pictures were from your family collection. As you were going through it, did you find any pictures where you're like, oh, I have no idea what this is. This is very interesting. We should find out what the story is. It might be good for the book. Yeah, um, I think we had enough data on the pictures of world 
you know, 1942 on. Mm -hmm. But the pictures from Shanghai and the bombings, um, and then uh, and then from Peking, were very historical. And and I I didn't know about that at all. And Marines I've talked to, they didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. So I thought, wow, I'm going to investigate this. And then he was also in Haiti. For, from 1919 to 1923 and was part of the Gendarme de Haiti. And um, so we've got pictures from there and I was trying to figure that out because I never really understood why the Marines were in Haiti. Of course, now I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and then, um, you know, he was a, he graduated from the Revenue Cutter School Service Academy, which was the predecessor to the US, US Coast Guard. And he traveled all around the world. So we had pictures from then mm -hmm. and I was like wow you know he's watching a snake charmer you know somewhere in Morocco <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know yeah. 1910 so uh, and you're like why are we focusing on World War Two? yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. so how cool well guys really appreciate your generosity with your time this has been awesome um, do you guys have any any final questions I've, I've been uh, just along for the journey so far so I, I'm, I'm satisfied how about you William yeah, so uh, just I like to do this with all our all authors who come in. Uh, where can we find uh, your book so all of our dear listeners can order it for themselves and their family and all their friends? <laughs> uh, we are, uh, it's Old Breed General, and you can find it, um, of course, online everywhere and, and uh, big bookstores and some local bookstores uh, all around the country. Amazon, uh, you go to Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. Barnes We've been in Barnes & Noble, we'll be doing a, um, a book signing here in the in Woodbridge in the, in tomorrow, Woodbridge tomorrow mm -hmm. at Barnes no and cool. Noble, mm -hmm. uh, but either BarnesandNoble.com or Amazon.com will get the book in your hand tomorrow. Hope everybody gets the book and reads it, especially for our Marine audience because it it does tell a huge story of World War II and a significant story that hasn't been told yet. And how brave the Marines were. Yeah. I mean, every time I stalled or yeah. got like I can't I can't figure yeah. out this battle. I'm like, right. Oh. We well, wanted to do this book not only to honor. Amy's grandfather, but to fulfill his wishes to honor his men. And, and, and we try to do that, absolutely. So what I'm hearing is um, if any of our uh, dear listeners out there are looking and writing potentially for Gazette at Leatherneck or looking for a uh, historical Marine who has received less attention, it uh, looks like General Rupertus is a great, uh, great inspiration for anyone to go write and research more and really understand. Right. So. One of the most historically significant Marines in history who hasn't been written about yet. Think about that. Th this guy could be on the Mount Rushmore of Marines in the Pacific. Yeah. I mean, like any of the uh, European commanders, Omar Bradley, George S. Patton, you name it, Rupertus was one of the most significant of our leaders in the Pacific. And this is a chance to get to know him for the first time. It's just kind of like if you were a, a history buff, a World War II buff, an, uh, an aficionado, the Marine Corps, it's just like open up a new present, a piece of candy at Christmas. So <laughs> we hope that you'll yeah. take a look at the book. Well, I looked him up a little bit when I was a kid because I lived on the street in San Onofre twice. So yeah. um, so it was just kind of a fun little tidbit nobody cares about. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, about a lot of uh, modern parallels, too, with uh, Rupertus and uh, what's going on in the world today. So, yeah, probably would be good Gazette material. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so, so much. This was really great. It's been an honor. All right. Enjoy yeah. being with you today. Best of luck to you guys. Thanks. Thank All you. Right. Take it easy. Bye. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. 
We have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scott of Letter are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.